Good morning again. We're going to start, we're in the Gospel of Luke, but we're not going to start there this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the Passover meal this morning in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. And to understand this greater Passover and what we're going to talk about, we need to really go back to the process of the first Passover. So I want you to turn to your Bibles right now to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. It would help you very much this morning if you have a Bible open, whether that's a, a real Bible in your hands or on your phone. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some there in the chairs. Uh, we encourage you to, to turn there. We're going to look at just these verses. I'm going to read those as we walk through this because I think it will paint a, a good picture for us of what we're going to look at here in Luke 22. And we're going to talk about the Passover and what does Passover mean, but it, it's just as the name suggests, God's passing over someone as he judges, a benefit provided through a substitute. And so as we look through this passage, hopefully in Exodus, we'll see it more clearly displayed in Jesus. So Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 1. We won't read the whole chapter, but we'll majority of it. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, houses, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his ne nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be a, without blemish, a male year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the f flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat, in, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as it is, it is a feast to the Lord. Throughout the generations is a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on two doorposts. Door the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. 
And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. In this chapter, we read the Lord's instructions to Moses about the Passover and the people's need for a substitute. A lamb would be needed, a Passover lamb that would die sacrificially so an Israelite family would be passed over in judgment. The lamb was to be without defect. And when I read this this week, my mind went to, maybe yours does, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter writes, knowing that you are ransomed for the futile ways inherited for your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was the one whom John the Baptist declared in John's gospel, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John, writing later in Revelation, says, And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. All of these images that we read in scriptures are reflecting this Passover we see in Exodus chapter 12. And even more interesting, we read that the lamb was to be slain, I read it, at twilight. And according to historian Josephus, the Passover lambs would be slain at 3 p.m., the same time Jesus died. But the blood also symbolized two things, the life of the victim and the life of those for whom it was substituted. And so as we read, the Israelites were instructed to take some of the, the lamb's blood and put it around the entrance of their home. They put it on the two doorposts and the lintel. And why would they need to do that? Why would the Israelites need to do that? It says in verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The ones in whom the Egyptians' hopes rested were to be killed in such a way that there was no natural explanation for it. It was a divine statement that God was making. The Lord would show publicly that the Egyptian gods were utterly powerless to protect the people. But he continued in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you and the house is where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plagues will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It was not just the Egyptians that were subject to God's wrath and deserved his judgment. God does not say that the Israelites were exempt from judgment just because they were Israelites or because they lived better lives than the Egyptians. No, the Israelites themselves were under God's wrath. So they needed to be protected. They needed a substitute. If an Israelite didn't obey God's word, what would happen? The firstborn would die. This was the night of their deliverance, their, their liberation, their redemption, their salvation from the tyrants of this world. This was Passover. It's the oldest of the Jewish festivals. It's the founding festival for a Jew. And as we read, as we talk about, and we'll see here today, at the center of this festival is a lamb without defect that is slain as a substitute. So did God intend the Passover lamb as a preview of Jesus Christ? You better believe it, friend. 
That all makes sense when we read the Bible together as one story. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, the seed of Abraham, is our Passover lamb. So all of this in Exodus 12 leads us to our passage in Luke 22. So turn there now, Luke chapter 22. And we're going to look at, Lord willing, the first 30 verses of Luke 22. And I have three points as I walk through this, but here's the the main idea. Jesus' death was the greater Passover, which inaugurates both his kingdom and the new covenant. And then three points here, the great betrayal, the greater Passover, and the greatest servant. So let's dive in, the great betrayal. Luke 22, look at verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. We just looked at the history of Passover in Exodus 12, but what are the the religious leaders doing on the eve of this remembrance? Well, we see it in verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, Jesus, for they feared the people. The people are preparing to remember, to celebrate Passover, but the religious leaders are preparing to murder. You would think that they'd be home with their families, but here they are scheming. And it's shocking, it it should be shocking to to an extent of these well-respected religious leaders and what they're doing. It's as if we were to read that Franklin Graham or John Piper were scheming to murder someone. People of high respect, religious leaders, this is what they're doing on the eve. It's that level, friends. That's the level of leadership we're talking about here. These are the leaders who are listened to and respected. And, not, and they're not just trying to take out any individual. No, they're, they're planning to take out the very Messiah, the one they were to look for. And this is a shocking denial but this continues to happen even to today. Maybe it's not to the extent of murder, but the denial of God. I read of a pastor in Canada in 2019 who decided they no longer believed in God, called themselves the atheist pastor. United Church then held a hearing to discuss these things because, well, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the Holy Spirit of Jesus. They, they were to be removed from the position, but guess what? The congregation disagreed. They wanted this pastor. It didn't matter to them. So they denied the same things the pastor denied and they believed the pastor was suitable to pastor them. And friends, this happens all the time. It continues to happen, this denial. I've seen it with my own eyes. And and ministerial titles do not guarantee a minister's orthodoxy, nor do they prevent great blindness blindness to sin. But these religious leaders were not acting on their own. They're not scheming by themselves. No, we hear hear about one of Jesus' own disciples. Verse 3. And we hear of Satan. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Here we read one of Jesus' own 12, the closest to him, turning it against him. His, his own disciple falling away from his profession. And so we learn here that even ministers fall away from their professions. 
This passage doesn't call into question the security of salvation of believers, but it does show us that there's such a thing as a false profession. And it not only comes from church members, it also comes from pastors and ministers. And just so I'm clear at the outset, Satan is listed because Satan is real. Satan was an angel of God and he was created to serve him. But one day he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. He wanted to be greater than God. He wanted to be God. So he rebelled against him and took one third of the angels in rebellion and they were cast out of heaven. Hell was prepared for Satan and his angels. If you remember in Luke's gospel, Satan made his first entrance in chapter 4. And we've been prepared, if we're listening and paying attention, to the re-entrance of the evil one. Since Satan sulked away after the temptation and the confrontation with Jesus in the wilderness, Luke says, until an opportune time that Satan would come back. Which is similar to the language here in verse 6 of the description of Jesus, or Judas looking for that opportunity to betray Jesus. The opportune time had come. Satan had been trying to disrupt the plan of God ever since Genesis 3. And this was his shot, so he thought. If he could kill the one who was going to deliver God's people, then, then they wouldn't be, be saved. He could end the plan. This is his, his, his shot here. That's why later in the chapter, when they arrest Jesus, he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The prince of darkness had found a place in the heart of one who had preached Jesus and followed him for three years. Simply put, friends, Judas was a professor, but he was not a possessor. He professed to follow Christ, but he never did. And the story of Judas should cause us all to pray for humility on a regular basis. We should pray like the psalmist in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. At our very best, we have but just a faint conception of the deceitfulness in our own hearts. Judas didn't look deceived to the people around him, but he was deceived. He made a false profession, even though he walked alongside Jesus for three years. And this should call us to humility, friends. The question might come to our minds, how could this have happened to Judas? How could he have fallen so far? He had such promise. He had a, a, literally a front row seat to the majesty of God and Jesus Christ. So how could he have turned away in such this fashion? Well, here's how it happens. An affection, a desire takes over your heart and you long for it more. You love it more than you love God or Jesus or the gospel. And then that desire takes hold of your heart and you turn away from God and do things that you never thought you would ever do. And what was the desire in Judas? I believe it says there in verse 5, they agreed to give him money. What Luke is telling us, I believe, is Judas loved money. He had an inordinate desire for money. That, that desire sunk deep within his heart. 
and moved him to betray Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us the same thing. Matthew's gospel says that when Judas went to the chief priest, do you know what he asked? He asked this, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? So the picture is painted very clearly for us. But then we get more details in John's gospel, chapter 12. After, If you remember the story, after Mary takes the expensive ointment and applies it to Jesus' feet, what does Judas do? What is Judas' response? He questions them. Why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? But then, then John gives us insight in what's going on in, in Judas. It wasn't he was concerned for the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. For three years as the chief accountant, as the treasurer, Judas had been stealing. The Bible, I believe, says very clearly, Judas's heart had been taken hold of money, by money. And that should cause us to stop and tremble. And friends, we need to watch and pray against the love of money. It's a subtle disease and closer to us than we realize. And a poor person is just as liable as a rich person to love money. J.C. Ryle said, it is possible to love money without having it and it is possible to have it without loving it. I've seen both. And so we need to be a people who are content with what we have. As I said before, Satan is real. He is cunning and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And to ignore him is a mistake and it's foolish to think that he doesn't exist. The Bible tells us to resist him and he will flee from you. James 4. He cannot enter a Christian who has the Spirit of God indwelling them. So what we learn here is Judas did not have the Spirit. But we do as believers. So the answer, friends, is to resist Satan and he will flee from you. So we've seen the great betrayal. Second is the greatest, the greater Passover. Look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. The Passover in Jesus' day was a festival of immense scale and enthusiastic devotion. Now, there would have been huge crowds descending on Jerusalem, and so Jesus sends Peter and John to get things ready for that evening meal together and sends them to find out this place. And, and this is another instance, like the gathering of a cult that we saw a few chapters earlier, where Jesus sends them on a mission that seems to be already set up for them for success. And it's encouraging that Jesus has such an array of unknown disciples who are willing to give him what he needs. Then look at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table 
and the, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why is it that Jesus deliberately chooses the Passover as the moment in which he is going to reveal the meaning of his suffering? Well, to answer that, we have to think again about the Passover. The Passover was a meal the Israelites ate the night before the Israelites were, were freed by God from slavery in Egypt. And God set it up that they were to have this meal together to remember how God saved them. It was a, it was a meal to show them again that they needed a substitute. But then Jesus continues, look at verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Jesus takes the cup, and he blesses it and gives thanks. And this is how the Passover meal worked. Tradition says the presider, the head of the family, would get up and take the cup, the first cup of wine, and he would give thanks, and then a question would be asked of him. The question was usually from the youngest child there, and it would be this. Why is tonight different from all other nights? And then the presider would, would speak, and he would explain the meaning of Passover. He would explain the passages in, in Deuteronomy, and he would explain this, this liberation of their people being freed from the tyranny in Egypt. And so Jesus here takes the cup, and he begins to speak, but he doesn't follow the script. He says things that have never been said at the Passover meal. And he doesn't talk about the past. He talks about the future. Look at verse 18. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, Jesus here is talking about something that has never happened before. He doesn't say, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in the wilderness. No, he says, this is the bread of my affliction, of my body. And this bread has to be broken for you. My body has to be sacrificed for you. I will be your substitute. See, every other Passover meal since, since this time in Exodus 12, every other one, year after year after year, they would look back. But this meal is different. They're looking forward. Year after year, they would look backwards to remember the rescue from political and economic slavery. But tonight, this meal before God will redeem us from sin and death and evil. They're looking forward to what Christ will do. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate Moses. This is the ultimate Exodus. This night is different than every other night before. This is the greater Passover. And Jesus is saying, this meal is all about me. My death and my suffering. All of this is the climax to which all of history has been moving towards. You 
need a substitute. And before you, you slain a lamb. But he says, now, this evening, I am your substitute. I'm a once and for all substitute. But that's not all. This, this meal was very revolutionizing to, to them because not just because of what he says here, but because of who was here. You notice who was included in this. This meal would form a new family, an intimate family, bound together not by blood relation, but by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Where did the people celebrate Passover every year? You celebrated with your family, your blood family. You realize that these, every one of these disciples had family someplace who were celebrating Passover that night. But, but here's Jesus saying, gather together and get this prepared and get it ready. And Jesus has the audacity to pull every one of these disciples away from their family on Passover night and bring them into this room and celebrate Passover with them now. And so what does this mean? What is Jesus doing here? I believe he's saying this meal, this is the greater Passover meal. It brings you now into a new family. And if you understand the cross, if you understand the gospel, it brings you into a new family. This meal, the Lord's Supper, is what makes a church a family. We don't become a church because we apply for a 501c3 tax exemption. That's not what makes us a church. We don't become a church when we pick a name and put it out by the road and say, everyone come. That's not what makes a church. We become a church family when we partake together of this communion meal together. That's what makes us a family. And so you can be of different race, and different income, and different politics, and different economics. It doesn't matter because what draws us together isn't an earthly status. What brings us unity is the cross and what Christ did for us. That's what makes us a family. But this is not all. We read in this account and we read the other gospel accounts that Jesus stood and he talked about the bread and the wine. But not one of these gospel accounts mentioned the main course. And what was the main course in the Passover meal? What was the most expensive item in the Passover meal? It was the lamb. Don't skip ahead. Passover meal was not a vegetarian meal. So where's the lamb? There's no mention of the Passover lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus was the main course. This is why John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time and he cries out, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was showing them right here how this was a greater Passover meal. He was the lamb 
that was to be slain. This meal would replace the Passover meal because this meal would remind us of what Christ had done for all who trust in him. See, on the cross, Jesus gets what we deserve. The sin, the guilt, the brokenness of this world, it all fell upon Jesus. And he loved us so much, he took divine justice on himself so that we could be passed over forever. We needed a substitute, and we couldn't do it on our own. Friend, you and I need deliverance from bondage of sin, from the fatal judgment of God, and that deliverance only comes through the blood of the lamb without a blemish. And just as the Passover lamb was a substitute for sinners, so too is the lamb of God. All of that we read in Exodus 12 was done for Israel so they would see and know as God's people and would be saved by a substitute That's what he teaches his people through Moses. They were subject to God's wrath, same as the Egyptians, and the lamb became a substitute. And the Passover meal then was to show them the way to redemption. And now this meal, with Jesus leading the discussion, would show them the greater Passover. The redemption had come. This would be the last Passover meal. There's no need to celebrate Passover anymore. It replaced for all of God's people with this communion supper which leads us to that last great supper of the Lamb that we will experience yet in the future. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God is calling you to trust in him, to believe that Christ has been sacrificed to pay your penalty, to bear your burden, to save you from God's righteous judgment for your sins. The Son of God voluntarily laid down his life for us if we would just trust and repent of our sins and trust in him alone. Jesus Christ is the greater Passover lamb sacrificed for all of his people. And at the end of this meal, Jesus looks forward to another time at the end when he will eat with us in the kingdom. The the Passover gives way to the Lord's Supper, which in turn points us yet forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the ultimate fulfillment. Before we end this morning, he will correct his disciples one last time. Look at verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. If Luke is writing in chronological order, then Judas had just participated in his first and last communion. And Jesus is not surprised. He knew of Judas's deadly bargain. He knew that the Father had determined the way he would be delivered over to death. Jesus knew it was this man that had shared his life with him day and night, who had seen his manner of life, who had witnessed everything, and had now turned against him. And the sickening reality hit Jesus. His woe for Judas was grief over what awaited this betrayer. He knew what would happen to him. But the others didn't know. And so they began to argue. Not only who the betrayer is, but they move into a new argument. Verse 24. 
A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. It's amazing that their conversation moves from denying that they would betray Jesus to arguing of which one was the greatest. And isn't pride such a blinding and dangerous sin? They're actually arguing and debating the Lord's replacement before he's gone. And the disciples are stuck on stupid as they're missing the greatest servant who is right before them. They have failed to grasp that the selfless suffering of Christ was an an essential prerequisite for the inauguration of his kingdom. It's Christ's suffering that ushers in the kingdom, not his might, not his power. And this is strikingly different than any other earthly king who establishes their rule by force and making their presence felt by political maneuvering and military strength. But Jesus wouldn't overcome people by force. He would be gentle and lowly. And they were to follow his example. The word benefactors in verse 25 is a very important word. For us reading English, it doesn't hit us very hard. The benefactors are the, the patronage system of the Greco-Roman society. What this meant was the people higher up in the socio-economic order would give help to people lower down, but it was only help that paid them off. If you had a benefactor who helped you, you owed them the rest of your life. You owed them political favors, you owed them perks, you owed them support, you owed them kindness. That's the way it worked. And Jesus says that that's how the world works, and it still works that way today. Now, I help people, I relate to people, but only the ones who will pay, pay it off for me. I, I help people, I relate to people, I hang out with people, but I only relate and I hang out with people when there's a payoff for me, where there's benefit for me. I want the most powerful people. I want the higher up people. I want beautiful people and smart people. And, and I want all of this so it helps me. And Jesus says, this shouldn't be with you. Other people help and relate to those with a payoff. And he says, I want you to love people indiscriminately. I don't want you to love people for your sake. I want you to love them for their sake, for love's sake, whether or not there's a payoff. And that's the reason when when he says, I'm giving you a kingdom. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I sign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And what he's saying at this point is he's saying, I, I, don't, I don't just want you to have warm relationships. I don't, don't want you to live like the world lives. No, this death of mine that I'm going to, to happen to me will, will change you. It will change how you live. 
power, recognition, status, money, those things cannot control you anymore. The cross changes things. The cross should change you. You should serve others. Do you want to be great? Jesus says, serve others. Do you want to do great things while you live on earth? Then serve others for the glory of God and not your own. Greatness comes not through might or power or control, but through a humbling service for other people. That's the kingdom. That's our job in the kingdom. And so those who walk in the way of the cross, accepting the suffering that comes as a result of following Jesus Christ and giving their lives to serve others, will ultimately reign with Jesus because that's what a Christian does. Now, I, I realize it's easy to condemn the disciples for their obsession with their own personal greatness. It's easy to sit back in judgment, but what, don't we see the same impulses in our own lives? from parents who find their meaning and purpose in their children's accomplishments to the person who is solely focused on outperforming their peers at work so that they can move up the corporate ladder or to the pastor who neglects his own flock to publish books and secure speaking engagements to to make his name big. If we're honest this morning, Most of us want some personal glory in the same way the disciples do here, but we're just too coy to argue about it and our our greatness openly for others to hear. We're the same. But Jesus gives us a better way. Verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And what a difference we would make in this world as Christians if this was the way of our life. We might not get that raise at work or secure a bigger home, but we would better reflect the heart of Christ. Being a follower of Jesus means that we ought to find places where our values and our loves are in stark contradiction to those who live around us in the world. We should look to be servants. Well, I need to finish. I want you to go back up to verse 15, though. Verse 15 stuck me this week. It struck me many times while I was studying. It's a hard verse to translate, to understand in English. The ESV says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see that phrase, earnestly desired? The English translators, no matter how hard they try, they're not able to to get across the proper meaning in English. He literally says here, with desire, I have desired this. It's a semantic doubling which gets across the intensity of emotion. But do we understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, You have no idea how much I love you. You have no idea how much my heart is bursting with love for you. You have no idea. 
what I'm about to do for you. You can't fully understand the, the depths of my love, the height of my love, the width of my love, the length of my love. But you will when you find out the meaning of my death. And you will finally understand what I did for you on the cross. And when you see that, and when you understand that, you'll be different. You'll be changed because of the cross. And it'll come, and you'll be full. And you won't have to be so self-centered. You won't need that payoff. You won't need anything because I'll be enough for you. Have you realized this about Jesus? Have you come to know this Jesus? This Jesus that's enough? This is an amazing Passover. The last one. And a new meal, a communion meal for the, for the church. All of this because of Christ's death for us on the cross. And we need to remind ourselves. He instructs us in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. To remember this means to take what Jesus did for us on the cross and to put it in the center of our consciousness, in the center of our life. To remember what Jesus did. To remember what it cost him to never get over the cross and to think about the ramifications of the cross in every area of your life and apply the gospel there. And whether that's in relation to your kids and their failures, you apply the gospel. And when you have struggles in your marriage, you remember the gospel, you remember what Christ has done for us on the cross and you're working through your addictions and habits that dishonor God, remember what Jesus Christ has done, what he's accomplished. And the power we have to live through these struggles in life is because of the cross. Not because we can do it on our own, but because of what Christ has done in his work in and through us. So even if there's sorrows, God is working. You remember back in John's gospel, chapter two, the wedding feast? You remember the story, they run out of wine? You know, this is a big faux pas in this time for a big wedding, right? Run out of wine and, and Jesus' mom comes. Jesus, you gotta do something about this. You remember what Jesus said? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now just so you know, Jesus is not being a jerk to his mom, okay? He's saying, it's not time for the cross. He's surrounded by joy. It's a wedding. You know, and then he turns water into wine and people are celebrating. And what is Jesus doing? He's sitting there thinking about his death. One commentator said, Jesus Christ sat in the midst of joy 
sipping the coming sorrow. He's always known. When he was on earth, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was on earth to accomplish. And he did it for us. So today, as believers, we can sit in the midst of sorrow and sip the coming joy. All because of Jesus. There is hope for us because of this meal. And what this meal represents, Christ's death for us. And the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Father, we can't get over what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you for the remembrance of what Christ has done for us and that we can read it and know it on your word. And we don't have to wonder how you feel about us. And we don't have to worry that we've upset you and walk on pins and needles. We can read of your love for us in your word. And we can boldly come before your throne. Help us to be in your word. Help us to live there, to live in the word to dwell and grow in your word week after week. Help us to remember. As this week goes and we face with opportunities to, to forget, to not believe, and to remember what you've done, we pray, Spirit, would you remind us of what Christ has done for us in the cross. And may we live to give you glory in all things. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.